Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or whatever we're up to today. Uh, this is my first experiment with doing it this way, and of course the uh, snow has forced this. I don't want you to lose another lecture. So we're doing it this way now. Let's say a prayer. Gracious and kind Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of uh, this time together. Help that even though it's being done electronically, Still, your Holy Spirit will be with us as a group. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, the book of Job is what we're starting out with. You should know it's a very old story. Uh, that will be no surprise to you. Um, oral tradition, looks like. Probably written down by Moses. That's what the... Uh, uh, Tradition says around 1300 BC or maybe as early as 1500 BC, depending on the dates for Moses. And if Job lived, it would have been perhaps two, three hundred years before that. That's the idea. Uh, the possibility is, one possibility is that Job himself, if he lived, might have authored it himself. Uh, it's set up as a frame story which means uh, that it's like a picture frame and that the, uh, the, the plot of Job, Job and his friends are inside the frame and God and the angels and Satan are outside the frame. Those outside the frame can look in, the people inside cannot look out, so they don't know what's going on. God and Satan and the angels do. So, we're going to start with the chapter 1, verse 1, and we're immediately going to run into trouble. We can't get past the first two words without discussion. There was. Was there? Is this fiction? Or is it nonfiction? Did it actually happen? Is it history? Or at least nonfiction? The divide right there uh, produces a great difference in Job criticism. Those who believe that this is simply um, a fictional story and those who believe that Job actually lived and actually said these things. Oral tradition uh, has been shown to be very accurate. doesn't change in hundreds of years. So it's entirely possible that if Job lived, and if the conversation was like this, we have the conversations, at least substantially. Was there a Job living in the land of Uz? Well, fiction argues, respectably, there's, there's nothing wrong if you want to think that it's fiction. Uh, it's intellectually honest to say that. But if there is, if it's fiction, it's simply a teaching tale, um, like a fable, Aesop's Fables or something. And uh, it'll teach how to be a Hebrew, how to be a godly man, um, how to live in the shadow of God's majesty and mercy. It illustrates man's eternal situation, uh, especially a good man who's been victimized. Thus, it's kind of like the Iliad or the Odyssey. They have good men being victimized. 
Nonfiction argues also respectively, respectively, that it did happen and that while there's all that teaching possibility we just talked about, it's enhanced because this is a real story about a real man who had these real experiences and who by prophetic insight perhaps later began to understand about what had taken place outside the frame. So as prophecy does, uh, the book of Job seen as nonfiction becomes a kind of prophecy and that's kind of important later. My own view is that it's nonfiction and that uh, these events happened. I think it makes better literature that way, if nothing else. We'll see how that works. Okay, there was a man. I believe there was. In the land of Uz. Now, nobody knows quite where the land of Uz was. It looks like it was east of Israel, uh, perhaps to the north, perhaps to the south. Nobody's sure. But it existed, uh, pretty certainly, uh, around 200 years, maybe more, uh, before Moses, whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. You see why it's important for us to come down on one side or the other. If this is fiction, then that word perfect is fiction. If this is nonfiction, then perfection means what it says. And how do we deal with that? See, this gets to be very tricky very quickly. For example, Matthew 5.48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we know that perfection is not possible except through grace. That is the grace that gives us the power to clean up, be better, and the grace that stands in for us uh, as the righteousness of Christ. So perfection is possible. It's not a fiction. Okay, and he was perfect and upright and one that feared God. That word fear is important. Uh, in the Bible, the word fear sometimes is translated uh, respect. But the word is yare, and it means scared. Have you ever been in seen an academy where the, there's a week of prayer and the fellow is talking about, uh, uh, the speaker is talking about how God forgives us. We needn't worry about all that uh, sin that we've done. And there's at the back row, there's a, a standard evildoers back there, and they're writing dirty notes in the Bibles. Uh, they don't need to hear for them the idea that God forgives them and they can be comfortable with that is not going to be very helpful. They're already not worried about sinning in front of God. Their first step is fear. And as the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Doesn't say the end, doesn't say the you know, all the way through. It says the beginning of wisdom. Job fears God. How could it be otherwise? How could, how could we 
not fear the great power of the universe. If you've ever sat next to a, um, a, a turbine at the bottom of a dam and thought about the thousands of pounds, the tons of water going through that thing to produce this immense amount of electricity that'll, that'll, that'll light a city. If you've stood next to this thing, there's a certain amount of uneasiness next to all that power. Well, what about the power of an infinite God, an omnipotent God? Fear is an important first step. We need to understand whom we're dealing with. Job feared God, and as Jude, he avoided evil. Okay, so far so good. If we take grace for meaning what it says, and if we assume that Job lived, then he was rich, and that was fine. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Let's pause a moment. Is that possible? Could a man have seven, seven sons and three daughters? No. Doesn't strain the imagination. Notice that that's not a perfect number. Seven is a perfect number. Three is a perfect number. And their total, ten, is a perfect number. All of them involving perfection. And then, <clears throat> for a number of the rabbis who comment on this, we get into trouble, believing that Job is non-fiction. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Another indication that the land of Uz is to the East somewhere of the land of Israel. And the rabbis and many others say, and these certain rabbis say, well, look, what are the odds that, this, that there are actually 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels? By the way, there's those perfect, perfect numbers again. And 500 yoke of oxen and 500 sheasses also getting to be a perfect number, 1,000. Um, all those perfect numbers, that's got to be fiction. All it means is, well, Job was a very, very rich guy. Okay, uh, that's a legitimate and um, um, respectable idea. But is it the only idea possible? Is it possible that Job had exactly and precisely the number that the Bible gives? The number of camels, 7,000. The number of sheep, 3,000. Uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, got that backwards. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses. Of course, a yoke of oxen is going to be two, so that'll be a 1,000 oxen. So all of these perfect numbers, is it possible, is it likely that Job would have had exactly these numbers? Well, why not? Would it actually take a miracle to make those numbers? We need to remember that in some parts of Africa, farmers keep a particular lucky number of animals. No more, no fewer. They think they'll prosper if they have a lucky number of animals. <clears throat> this isn't about luck. That's Luck is the devil's gift. But is it possible 
that a man like Job might have found an answer to how to be rich and still righteous? John D. Rockefeller was once asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how, how much money is enough? And he answered, just a little bit more. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. John D. Rockefeller just wanted a little more money. That means he was a kind of slave to the idea of getting more money. Pitiable. Job, being a perfect and rich man, maybe has to figure out how much is enough? What's, what's enough money for me? What's enough wealth? Because one needs to live with limits. That's why there was a, a tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. There had to be a limit. How will we limit, rich man? How will we limit uh, what the ownership is? As a man of God, he would have identified, perhaps with God's help, that those numbers would constitute enough. He would set bounds, unlike John D. Rockefeller, on their, uh, on his possessions. Now, hmm, how would he make sure that he had exactly those numbers? Would that be possible? Hmm. McKee Foods became very successful with several things. The family pack was very, was very, sold very well. But also, they decided to adopt a policy of profit sharing. Beyond a certain amount, they would take the normal profits of the company and instead of distributing those to the family or plowing them back into the operation, they would give them as gifts to employees every, every September. You would have this certain amount beyond what they defined as normal profits, and that amount would be divided among all their, their uh, um, employees. What do you think the effect was on the employees at McKee Foods? Well, they loved it. In fact, it's a major reason for staying employed at McKee's. Even if you don't like your job very well, you keep thinking, you know, come September, there's going to be this nice little sweetener. There's going to be Christmas coming early, and I'm going to like that. Very often, people stay um, in the job at McKee Foods, even perhaps jobs they're not as comfortable with because of these this profit sharing. So suppose Job did that. Is it possible? Could Job have said, okay, to his herdsmen, keep my flocks and herds really healthy. Anything over 1,000 of these is going to be yours. And you're going to start building up your own flocks and herds. <coughs> pretty soon, probably, uh, pardon me. And pretty soon, you're going to be rich people as these are apportioned among the flocks. Would those, would those people, knowing first of all that Job had been blessed by God 
and they wanted to be cooperating with God, <clears throat> well, those people have kept a very, very, very accurate count of a thousand of these animals. And would they have kept uh, then the, health, the, the, the flock very, uh, and the herd, um, very healthy? So they would produce more. <laughs> sure they would. Why is it impossible, I ask the rabbis, why is it impossible for those numbers to be perfect numbers, to be perfectly accurate numbers? Why not? And you see, if we say they are perfect numbers, then we don't have fiction, and we don't just have, well, he's a rich guy. Instead, what we have is, how is he a rich guy? We are rich people, and by the way, everybody in this uh, class is, me included, although we don't look at sometimes in America, contrast us to what people in India are living on. We're rich all right. How can we live with our riches? By setting limits. By saying, I'm going to turn in an honest tithe. And I'm going to give an offering, too. And if God shows me a mission field I need to contribute to, perhaps with my time, I'm going to do it. You see? If we say that the book of Job is non-fiction, we have a wonderful sermon on how to live as rich people, as opposed to just the hand-waving where we say, ah, Rich guy, okay, go on. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, I'm on verse 4, every one his day. And they sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So, they are celebrating their wealth. Is it okay to celebrate your wealth? Why not? It's a gift of God. He likes to see you enjoy it within limits, within boundaries within complete devotion to him. He likes to see you have a good time. And so they feasted everyone on his day, and they called their three sisters, and they all had a great time as a family. It's wonderful when you see your children acting nobly, acting well. It's wonderful. I speak as a father and as a proud father. Pray for that to be true. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning. What does that mean, sent and sanctified them? He rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. That is something to stop and think about. Remember Storgi? Remember the obligations of Storgi? Achilles owns his troops. 
They fight or they don't fight according to his order. Because they're owned by Achilles. Odysseus owns his sailors. And he uses them like cattle. The obligations of Storgi, and they can't complain. The obligations of Storgi go up for the Greeks. Here now is Job, like Christ, acting out an obligation down to the people, the children he owns. Do you see he's a type of Christ here? Christ made the world. The world went bad. Christ came and took responsibility for the world that he did not, had no fault in having go bad. It wasn't his fault, but he gave his life for that creation that he had created. In the same way, Job sacrifices for his children. They don't sacrifice for him. It's not like the Iliad, the uh, Odyssey. We'll give you gifts and the common people will pay for it. Our Storgi people will pay for it. No, no, no. Here, Storgi goes down. Now, there is a, an obligation on the part of those sons, too. Yes, and daughters. Mm -hmm. Storgi goes up. But, here in the Bible, the important uh, direction is downward. As Job sacrifices his stuff, his property, for his children. Because it may be that my sons have sinned. Does he know that his sons have sinned? No. Or his daughters? No. He doesn't know. All he knows is there's the possibility. And in order to guard against that policy, that possibility, he sacrifices his own goods. The obligation of Storgi under God's government quite different from the Greeks. And what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Now there was a day. Six. Now there was a day. Was there? If you think this is fiction, then we're looking at a fanciful picture of God in his heaven and the angels coming around to see him and Satan coming too. All of that fiction, we don't have to think of God as an old man on a white throne anthropomorphically, say the fictive people. But if there was such a day, then God is personal. And we are encouraged to think of him anthropomorphically. I don't know about the final nature of God, neither do you. But I do know that in many parts of the Bible, God is presented anthropomorphically as a man. Not a man, of course, but a man, a, a, a God 
whose form is somehow manlike. This is a great encouragement. This is a great thing. Because thinking of God that way saves us from pantheism, which we'll talk about more later. The idea that God is some kind of universal soup. No, we are encouraged. Whatever ultimate truth is, we are encouraged here and now to think of God anthropomorphically and as a man. Patriarchically, patriarchally, I don't know, not sure how that's pronounced. Anyway, you get the idea. That's how the Bible wants us to think about God. And if that's how the Bible wants to think of us to think about God, I suggest that we do it. Because there are reasons, even if we don't understand them. So, in my view, there was such a day. When the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. The idea is that these are the um, these are the angels that represent the various worlds. And Satan came also among them. There are people who object to this. They say, Satan could not be in the presence of God. It's fiction. Why couldn't Satan be in the presence of God? Under grace? Grace isn't the grace of Christ wouldn't apply to Satan, but God's mercy in allowing Satan to do this, as in fact representing earth. He's a representative. He's allowed to come. This impossibility is made possible by a loving God. I call that grace, though again, it isn't the grace of Christ's blood, but that which that's for us. But God is being very gracious and allowing this rebellious thing to come and talk to him. So there is Satan and there is a formal speech. This is an epic. And epics have formal speeches. Here's one. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Doesn't he know? <laughs> no, it's a formal question, like at a wedding. Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? The, the, the preacher knows the answer to the question. It's being asked for a formal purpose. There's an event going on here. And it begins with that recognition of what Satan's status is. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Now, the Lord's question is two questions. The big one is, whence comest thou? Where do you come from? How can a perfect creature, made perfect, made joyous, made complete, how does a perfect creature suddenly switch around, go the other way, 
rebel, lead out a third of the angels, and make a mess of the earth. How, how does that happen? No answer to that. Satan doesn't have an answer. Doesn't try to answer it. If you read Paradise Lost, Milton tries an answer. It's not bad, but God's answer will be better than Milton's. So I'll leave it alone. But the second one is, <coughs> what location have you just been to? Did you just come from? And Satan answers that question just fine. From walking to and fro in the earth and up and down and walking up and down in it. Well, what does that answer entail? It entails territoriality. How does a wolf maintain his territory? The head wolf. Well, he walks around his territory. He's walking around in it. And he is marking that territory in the same way Satan marks his territory. And I'll leave that to your imagination. Oh, but he's asserting ownership of the earth, walking to and fro and up and down. It also means that Satan is restless. He does not sit, he does not lie down, he does not go to sleep. He walks and walks and walks and walks. Years ago I saw a video of a dog, part of whose brain had been cut out. Beautiful German Shepherd, felt awful to watch it. And he was set on a track and pushed and he started to walk. And he walked 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 round and round and round and round and he felt so sorry for that poor creature. And finally, the experimenter put some kind of a barrier in front and the dog walked and walked and bumped his nose on the barrier and stopped. Satan's brain, part of it, Satan's mind has been partially destroyed. There's no wisdom in Satan. Wisdom is gone. And so he walks and walks and walks and his angels with him. He stays very busy. He stays almost, he's compulsive in his activity. He walks and walks and walks, claiming his territory. So that comment is a claim of territory. And it looks as though, if you don't understand that, it looks as though God's next question is kind of out of a clear blue sky. Hast thou considered my servant Job? Before we go there, though, if this is fiction, it's all a fantasy, like a Stephen King novel or something. But if it's real, Satan and his angels are very active. And they are active now, except for angels whom I pray to protect me in this room 
I pray that the angels will protect you where you are from all evil that stalks hatefully, that follows you, wanting to touch you, except there's this angel there. I pray that your angel may protect you from the Satan who walks and walks and walks and walks after you. It's happening now. If you're watching this 10 years after I have given it, it's happening now. Unless the Lord has come in that time, may it be so. So the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? You haven't marked him as your territory. There's none like him in the earth. A perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and is true with evil. All there has to be is one in the earth. Here is a Christ figure too. Job does not walk uprightly, perfectly, except under the power of Christ. Grace, the two kinds of grace, one that forgives his sins, and two that empowers him not to sin, even when terribly tempted by the Satan who walks after him. He's a perfect and an upright man. Well, if this is fiction, fiction word. But if it's true, then perfection is possible. And we are not victims, finally. We're rescued from our victimization and lifted into glory. Then Satan answered the Lord. Satan doesn't say, He's not righteous. He says, does, God fear, does Job fear God for naught? You've paid him off. You've blessed him. Hast thou not made a hedge about him? Yes. A hedge of angels standing between Job and Satan. Yes. Praise God for that hedge today. Hast thou not made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance has increased in the land. You have blessed him. Does God have a right to bless those who are faithful? He blesses even those who aren't faithful. Sends the rain, sends the sun, keeps them alive, hoping, hoping that they will finally follow him. How much more has he a right to bless people who have committed to him, however uncertainly, however faultily? And then Satan, who was, of course, the accuser. This is the first use of the word Satan in the Bible, and the word means the adversary, the accuser. What we have here is a trial. God is the judge. The angels are witnesses. I'm not sure I'd call them jury, but they're witnesses. God judges. Satan is the accuser. It's a trial. 
prosecuting attorney. And who is on trial? Well, right now it looks as though Job is on trial. Not primarily. God is on trial. Yes, he's the judge. But he must judge rightly. And Satan is accusing him to his face. You are acting evilly. God is on trial. So what's Job? Job is a witness. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. A witness is not the same as a doer of, of uh, theology. Theology is great. Ye are my debaters. Doesn't say that. Ye are my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness testifies as to what he or she has seen personally, has happened to them. For instance, when I became an English major, I uh, prayed, what do I do with my life? And the Lord sent me a bunch of strangers to talk to me in Newton Hall, PUC, about how, about, about how to interpret English. I was an aviation major at the time. God sent them and sent more and more weeks, a couple of weeks, until finally he sent someone who said, would you tutor me for the rest of the next quarter because I'm flunking English. And I said, as I did to each one of them, is there a buzz going on? Why are you coming to me? And like each of them before, he said, I don't know, just seemed like a good idea. A story like that is witness. It happened to me, as I've said it happened. You can't laugh that off. Our experience is witness. It's another reason why I believe that the book of Job is nonfiction. This is witness. But if it's nonfiction, then today, perhaps, Satan is turning his flaming eyes on me or you. Really, not in fiction, not in fantasy, really. And is saying, here is a righteous person. I wanted to witness now under torture. It could be happening today, at this moment, to you or to me. It's certainly happening to somebody that is being called as a witness for God. That's Job's business. Would Job, and of course Job doesn't know this, he's inside the frame. He doesn't know what's going on. Suppose you were called as a witness, a character witness, for a friend who's being sued. And you'd have to testify and lose a day's wages because you were sitting there in court waiting to be called, or maybe two, or maybe three days' wages. How, how willing would you be 
to be a character witness for somebody under those circumstances? Most people say it would matter, it would depend on how good a friend this was. How good a friend is God to Job? If Job knew the end from the beginning, and if this is a real story as I believe it is, and Job later got prophetic insight into what had happened beyond the frame, I believe that Job would have consented to all of it for his great friend, God. I think so. How much are you willing to give up in order to witness for the Lord if and when Satan turns his eyes on you? But put forth thine hand now, eleven, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Whew. There's an accusation. It's two accusations, actually. He'll curse you to your face, and put forth thine hand now. Oh, is it God's hand that's going to do this? We need to see the book of Job is very profound. The answer first is no. That's Satan's hand. Think again. We say that God is omnipotent. What does that mean? It means that God is all-powerful. All the power in the universe is God's. Period. Omni. Every bit of it. Potent. Power. All-powerful. But there's a hymn that uh, called A Mighty Fortress in which uh, one of the lines goes about Satan. His craft and power are great. Hmm. How can Satan have any power if God is omnipotent. Isn't that a conflict? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? The only answer is that God is allowing Satan to pervert God's power. He's letting, he's using his power, God is allowing his power to sustain Satan. If not, Satan couldn't exist. He died. And thus, Satan is in a ridiculous position. He's like a man hanging from a cliff with one hand. And in his other hand, he's got a hammer and he's beating his fingers. Satan is a suicide. And he wants to take you with him. Put forth thine hand. It's God's power. It isn't God's hand. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. 
If God is omnipotent, where does Satan get his power? Only in one place. All that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and Job's misery begins. We'll take it up at verse 13 next time. Enjoy the snow. Have a good evening.